today. I would like to introduce to you Reverend Charles Mickey. He's been in the ministry 37 years. He met Mark Lanier when Mark was in college back in the 70s in Lubbock. And uh, Charles has been a campus pastor. He's been a senior pastor. In fact, he was the senior pastor for several members of this class back in the 80s. Uh, Melna Moriarty, Tom Webster, and maybe others. And now he's living in the Dallas area and he's working for a Christian nonprofit ministry. He's married to Kay and they have two daughters. And he's uh, an all-around great guy. I've gotten to, met, to uh, know him before the service and a little bit afterwards. And we're really excited that Mark has asked him to come teach on a very difficult subject, the uh, problems in the synoptic gospels. And so join me and let's give a warm champion for us. Welcome to Reverend Charles Mickey. Thanks. Hey, good morning. I'm uh, going to get accustomed to these lights here, so give me just a moment. Wish I could see your eyes a little bit better. Um, I am so excited to be here. I just want to tell you thank you. You had nothing to do with it, I know, but uh, you're, you're going to let me stand here and you're going to be kind enough to listen for the next uh, few minutes. And uh, I was genuinely honored when Mark called uh, a few days ago. Uh, Mark and I hadn't talked in a good long time, but Mark was a student uh, in my campus ministry days when I was working with Texas Tech students, Lubbock Christian University students, uh, a variety of uh, students there in Lubbock, Texas. I'll never forget, uh, Mark had already completed a, uh, a degree in Greek up in Tennessee when he came to me one day. I'd known him before this, but I have a couple of degrees in Greek. We had a lot of common ground to uh, explore and we, we loved being together and there were others that were with us at different times. But Mark came to me one day and he said, Charles, he said, I'm trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. What do you think I ought to do? You know, should I go into ministry? Should I do this, that? He was considering law school. I asked him lots of questions. We talked quite a while and I finally said, Mark, why don't you go to law school? <laughs> and the other day I told him, uh, I said, do you remember uh, my good advice for you? And he said, oh yeah. I said, well, Lately, I've been wondering if I shouldn't have taken the same good advice. <laughs> uh, there's a lot more to tell to that. I won't bore you with the details, but God has blessed him. And you know what I rejoice in is that he has a ministry, a powerful and exciting ministry right here with you. And God uses him in, in far-reaching ways beyond this class as well. Isn't that right? Amen. You are blessed for his life. I just want to uh, add a little bit and, and contribute to that today. When Mark told me what he wanted me to teach on, I swallowed deeply and I thought to myself, man, alive, <clears throat> I haven't studied the synoptic problem in a good while. I certainly haven't lost any sleep over it. Uh, is it a problem? Uh, is it still a problem? You know, when I was in graduate school and all of that, uh, talking to some friends last night, I was talking, they wanted to know what I'm going to teach this morning. I said, the synoptic problem. There was this blank stare like, what is that? One of the guys suggested you might take a Claritin and it would solve the problem. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to explain to you in a moment what, what that problem is and we'll talk a good bit about it. Those of you who were here last week have a really excellent introduction into the problem. You know what it is maybe? Uh, at least you've had an opportunity to know what it is and uh, then we'll kind of build on that. I love the fact that you have the handouts. Did you get those this morning? Uh, and you've got, if you were here last week, you have about a nine-page handout. Uh, that, that was well done, excellent, and we're going we're gonna to build on that this morning. I want to take a moment to thank Mike and Melna for their incredible hospitality. 
uh, helping us this weekend. It's been a great joy to reconnect and get to know Mike. I want to thank Philip and Sanoff. I'm saying, I don't know whether that's the right way to say it, but Philip has become just a very special friend in 24 hours. Uh, someday, you must get him to tell his story of God saving his life. And I'm not talking about the recent decision for Jesus to come into his heart. That is the greatest salvation. But uh, 1997, I think you told me, God literally saved his life and he was declared when he was declared dead. And uh, I believe that God saved his life in order to save his life, eternal life. And you must get his story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Philip, if, if I had a couple of uh, Sundays here, I'd let you tell it right now, but I got so little time and so much material. Uh, Philip told me that listening and learning from Mark Lanier was like trying to take a drink out of a fire hydrant. I'm going to try to give you the same experience, okay? I'm going to try to give you the same experience. Um, basically, the synoptic problem is this. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have identical word-for-word sections within them. If you looked at the original language, you, you would see exactly the same Greek words. And in the English, they should be exactly the same words. Sometimes they're not. But then you will see variations. A phrase different here. A sentence added here. Uh, a, a, another sentence missing here. Uh, Mark, if you look at them, is you know, obviously the shortest. 16 chapters. When I'm teaching college, university level, uh, the students always, if they had to read one gospel, they'd choose Mark. Why not? <laughs> Mark is 16 chapters and Matthew's 28, you know. So, uh, but the question arises, why are there similarities? Why are there differences? Distinctive differences. The arrangement of the material, the choice of the words, all that. What do you, how do you explain that? Well, maybe, you know, you've got these possibilities and theories. Nobody knows for sure. And I'm here to tell you that we won't know the absolute certain answer on the synoptic problem until we get to heaven. Thank God we don't have to know to get to heaven. <laughs> you may be asking, well, why do we study it then? <clears throat> I'm going to tell you. The reason we study it is because there are a lot of people who have been discouraged in their faith, who literally have taken that first big step, maybe even several other steps down the line, to leave their faith because somebody came up and said, hey, those Gospels are not credible. You can't believe what they're saying because, look, here they differ on this, that, and the other. Who, who's right and who's wrong? We're going to talk about that. That's the synoptic problem, okay? I'm going to try to give you real quickly a parable. Imagine for a moment your car's not working right. In fact, it just literally stopped working. You take it to a mechanic. I've got a great mechanic in the, in the Dallas area on the Central Expressway. I, years ago, somebody recommended to him. I go to him. I regularly take my cars to him, and, and he's had some major challenges with my cars because <laughs> they got lots of miles on them. But he is reliable, trustworthy, tells me the truth. And when I go to somebody else, occasionally I go for a bargain over here or over there for brakes or muffler or something. And I go back to him. He scolds me severely. Imagine for a moment you take your car to a mechanic and he starts taking it apart. I mean, he's got the bolts and the nuts and the carburetor and the radiator and the, the generator and every other kind of aider off of your navigator and your aviator. And you're wondering which way is up and he's wondering which way is up. But he's taking it apart and trying to decide, well, how does this work, you know? 
Well, why is this go here? Why does that go there? And I don't understand this part, but why, you know, they've got it in here. After a while, he's got it completely apart in thousands and thousands of pieces. And you're asking why? It's been weeks since you've had the car. You need reliable transportation. He forgot the reason that you brought the car in there. That's a crazy illustration of what sometimes happens with a synoptic problem. When you forget the purpose of the synoptics and of the Gospels, all four of them, including John, you can get so focused on the meticulous detail of why Mark has this and Matthew doesn't have that and Luke has even something special different. You really can easily miss the point of the Gospels. What is a Gospel anyway? A Gospel is a very special kind of literature. It's not a biography. It's not like somebody writing about Winston Churchill and telling you every decision he ever made and why he made it and his background, his home of, uh, family of origin and all of that. A gospel is specifically written for a very clear purpose. We've got the, the scriptures up here. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Luke says at the beginning of his gospel, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke says, I want you to be clear. I want you to be certain of what happened. I want to undergird your faith. I want to give you support and encouragement. Let's go to John. John ends his gospel, or close to the end, with this statement. Really clear on why he wrote those 21 chapters. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, who are, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why did you write it, John? John says, because I want you to believe in Jesus. No other reason. Bottom line, clear purpose. Don't miss it when you study the Gospels. It's not a hidden agenda. We're not just trying to inform or entertain or, or do something. We're trying to create and undergird and support faith in the one and only Savior who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John says, if you put your faith in Him because of what I'm writing, that is my goal you will have everlasting life. Now, that's impressive to me. Mark doesn't say it so clearly. Uh, Matthew, I, I think, doesn't say it so clearly. But every gospel, understand please, is written to a special audience, different audiences, with different perspectives and different angles on life and the culture they're in, the, the, the questions of life, and uh, what's, what's really a challenge to them. Uh, let, let me give you a, a couple of helpful observations. Imagine for a moment that you are driving down the road and there's an accident that happens in front of you in an intersection. Now you're from, you're, you're, you're behind the accident, so you see, you know, a certain portion of what's happening. But you're not sure about some of the other parts you couldn't see so well. So you notice that there's somebody on every corner happened to be standing at that intersection when the accident happened. On every corner, you've got a, a separate person and you interview those people afterwards. What do you think you're going to get? You're going to get some variation in the report of what happened. 
Some of them, because the light's different from this corner than that corner, they're going to see a green car. Some of them saw a blue car. Some of them saw a black car. May not be the color of the car. May be uh, who did this or that. Whether the light was yellow or whether it was red. All those kinds of variations. Our, um, our gospel accounts are similar to that. That's, that's one of the main things I want to say to you is you have Matthew as an eyewitness with a little bit different perspective. You have Mark, who is a secretary, if you please, to Peter. It's, it's well verified, I believe, and I think Mark covered this last week, that Mark, not as an eyewitness so much, he could have been there for certain portions of the story, including the garden scene uh, and, and other parts of the story. In Acts, definitely we think that he was there as the church came together in Acts 12. They were praying for Peter. They were probably meeting in Mark's mother's house. So she was at least uh, well enough uh, fixed to be able to provide a house big enough for a church, a small church to meet in. But Mark, probably in the city of Rome, is writing down the reminiscences or the, remember, the memories of Peter. Peter has told these stories over and over and over again. And uh, not only Peter, but others have created an oral tradition. These have been passed along. They've, they've taken a certain shape. Certain phrases and words are repeated in them. Mark writes these down. Why? We'll talk about that in a minute. Luke, on the other hand, by the way, Mark, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He keys on Old Testament scriptures. He uses prophecy after prophecy to, to show that Jesus is the fulfillment as the Messiah of these prophecies. Mark writes primarily for the Romans, I'm convinced. And if you read Mark, I don't know, I'm just guessing, if you're a person in the American culture, will be more likely impressed with the quick movements of a superhero. That's what Jesus is in the Gospel of Mark. He is a superhero who moves. The, the key word in Mark is straightway in the Old Testament, in the Old versions or translations, straightway, uh, more often immediately. Jesus is moving. He is going. He is going from one place to another and He is doing marvelous things. Mark is written more as a travel log. Just quick movement. Luke, on the other hand, and Matthew too, are written as a very carefully uh, planned, arranged, and organized presentation of the gospel message. Matthew for the Jews, Luke for the Greeks. Luke is written to the Greeks, and some think that it's sponsored, so to speak, by Paul. Paul the Apostle, who became a Christian in Acts. The story is told three times in the book of Acts. And... Uh, uh, Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. He's a doctor. Uh, Luke was well-educated. His Greek, by the way, is at a much higher level of refined polish, like a graduate-level course compared to the Gospel of John, who's just a meager fisherman. There's a vast difference in the levels of Greek and the vocabulary. Uh, why do we have all four Gospels? Because there are lots of different kinds of people. And we're coming from lots of different kinds of backgrounds. But these four presentations, when you pull them together, make no mistake about it, will tell you if you want to know. If you're willing to learn honestly, they will tell you what you need to know about the Savior, Jesus Christ. So I just want to tell you, you know, on the outset, if I don't get anything else across, don't let the snoppy problem keep you awake, okay? <laughs> uh, one other point 
difference in Western and Eastern culture and thought. We're going to get down here in a moment if we have time to compare. And I'll just, in fact, I'll just go ahead and do that. No, I'd throw you off, wouldn't it? <laughs> Let me just say quickly, the Western and Eastern culture and thought, vastly different. Um, Western mind and civilization is more concerned about detail, about the sequence, about the order, about what really happened, what are the factual, just tell me that, you know, the old dragnet line, just give me the facts, ma'am. Nothing but the facts. And uh, Eastern, on the other hand, is not so concerned about the details, the, the, the what, when, where, and how, and why. It's just concerned about the that, that it happened. That Jesus was resurrected. Not so interested in how many angels and all the details that you went through last week as you went through that. I skipped over something I wanted to tell you uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, President Reagan uh, finally succumbed to Alzheimer's recently. And I don't know whether you regarded him as a villain or as a hero. But I love the, uh, the quote that I ran across from Reagan uh, that takes us back to some of the points we were just making. Um, Reagan was standing before the National Association of Towns and Townships at the beginning of his tenure. I think it was 1983. And uh, he gave this, he was talking about or lamenting the government's uh, inability to solve all the problems of our nation. And, uh, and he was talking about the expectation that government ought to be able to solve all the problems of our nation. He said, quote, well-intentioned individuals thought if they were only given the power, they could right, they could right every wrong. As I said, they were well-intentioned, but there's a well-known road paved with good intentions. No one likes to go where it takes you. And then he told this story. He said, there's a story about a young man who's, who's riding down the road on his motorcycle. Uh, it was a very cold day. The wind was chilly. He had his leather jacket on, but wind was coming through the, the buttonholes and, and down the front of the jacket. So he decided to stop, turn the jacket around, solve his problem. He had a great idea. He put the jacket on backwards. The air can't come through that solid uh, jacket. But of course, that limited his arm movements. And uh, before long, he hit a patch of ice. He careens into a tree and uh, a crowd gathers. Uh, they're trying to help him. The, when the police finally get there, they say, what happened here? And they say, we don't know for sure. Uh, when we got here, he seemed to be all right. But by the time we got his head turned around straight, he was dead. I love the craziness of that because it illustrates, you know, some of the stupidity that, that gets into our well and our good intentioned actions when we don't focus on the total picture. You know, the purpose of the gospels, for example, in this case, uh, we're, we're trying to twist and turn all these details and ask sometimes the wrong questions. The point that I wanted to make earlier was that when you're standing on the street corners, you've got different perspectives. When you're in different cultures, you have different perspectives. So much depends on the perspective that you bring to the text. Are you bringing prideful disdain of what you call or what others have called the crutch of Christian faith? Are you bringing a desire to prove what you already think is right? Are you trying to prove that's right? Are you trying to prove what somebody else believes is wrong? A lot of scripture study, in fact, way too much of it is done with those preconceived ideas. I'm going to prove this right. I'm going to prove this wrong. We're looking for proof texts instead of coming to the text as a love letter from God and asking the question, God, what do you want me to know? 
What are you trying to teach me? I want to be an honest learner. What are you saying to me? I, I recommend every time you open the Word, and I recommend that regularly, I don't get very far from the Gospels, keep coming back again and again to look at Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus in the Gospels, you are looking into the face of God. And isn't that what you want to do? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. We sang at the beginning of the worship assembly. And I love being in there with you. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. Well, you know how to see Him is to look at Jesus. Study Jesus. Go to the Gospels. Let Jesus open and reveal to you who the Father is. And you'll be better able to be like Him. Roman numeral 3 in the outline is simply a reference and a quick uh, kind of a review of a book published in 1995 that really made some waves in the study of the synoptic problem. David Dungan, uh, out of Tennessee, wrote a history of the synoptic problem, subtitled The Canon, the Text, the Composition, and the Interpretation of the Gospels. He did a magnificent job. He is one of the scholars who these days believes that Matthew, like Lanier uh, talked about last week, is likely the first. Most of scholarship in biblical circles and in seminary studies these days will still hold on to Mark and priority. Mark being, they believe, the first to have been written and uh, then the others copying some of Mark but using another source. We'll come to that in a second. Three different approaches to the synoptic problem I've detailed here. Number one, the first came in the third century. The preacher Origen tried to figure out what should we do with this synoptic problem. He finally decided, okay, there's some of the Bible are some of the texts that should be considered literal truth. And there are other parts of the text that should only be considered symbolically true. The problem with that is, who's going to decide? <laughs> Who gets to say this is literal and this is symbolic truth? Well, that approach is virtually extinct. In the 5th century, when there were those who attacked the credibility of the Gospels, Augustine, who was an incredible... Uh, Scholar, preacher, uh, convert to Christianity after a, after a terribly sinful life, Augustine approached the synoptic problem with the idea that the Gospels are all and everywhere literally true. Everything in them is literally true, but the way that we see no contradiction is by harmonizing and uh, basically doing what Mark did with the, with the resurrection stories last week. If you want to look back at the notes from last week, you can see what was done with that. And that pretty much exemplifies the 5th century and forward approach to the word that Augustine somewhat originated. In the 19th century, beginning in the 19th century, a, a method of approaching Scripture that has been often referred to as historical critical method began to be used. I wish I had time to really get into details of the nuts and bolts of that, but I really don't. Dungan talks a great deal about this. And uh, he details that this basically approaches the Word with the idea that there is almost no literal truth in this Scripture, what we call Scripture. It doesn't assume, in fact, it chooses to go against the idea of divine inspiration, regardless of what definition of that you might choose. Uh, it seeks a purely literary explanation for similarities and differences, and it accepts this historical critical method that, that really continued for the last 200 years or more or so, uh, accepts the two-source hypothesis. Let me explain what that is quickly. You may want to write a note. 
Basically, the two-source hypothesis is, number one, Mark was first. Matthew and Luke copied parts of Mark. But they also used another source that's common to Matthew and Luke, called, often called in biblical scholarly circles, Q. Mark had a little bit about that last week. Q stands for the Greek or the German word, quelle, which means source. They're basically saying, there must have been. <laughs> They're saying, there must have been. We postulate a source. We don't have any evidence of that source. We don't have any manuscripts, even though there are thousands and thousands of copies of various parts of the New Testament of the manuscripts, not only the original, but copies of the copies. But we don't have anything that could be called this Q. They still hold on to that tenaciously. And then what is unique to Matthew is called M very often. And what is unique to Luke is called L. So in a sense, they allow for four sources. You struggle with that and work with that for a while. But Dungan's view of the modern historical criticism is that it has become a Trojan horse. You know what a Trojan horse is? That's something that you think, hey, this is great. Bring it on in. Let's use it. Let's, uh, let's adopt it. Let's uh, uh, have fun with it. But before you know, the sides open and out comes darkness and evil. Well, I think that's exaggerated. I think there's still some usefulness, great usefulness for the historical critical method. But I want to read to you a confession by David Dungan that he makes in his, in his book. David Dungan says, I had always thought that the historical critical study of the Bible had nothing to do with politics, that it was a pure and noble calling requiring years of apprenticeship followed by decades of dedicated service in the vineyards of archaeology, comparative philosophy, that should be philology, historical reconstruction, sophisticated literary analysis, fearless theological critique, and so on. I never knew that I was a foot soldier in a great crusade to eviscerate the Bible's core theology, smother its moral standards under an avalanche of hostile historical questions, and at the end, shove it aside. That's what many scholars have done under the name of historical critical method. Mark it carefully, people. You want to use any tool that comes to you carefully with, with a serious eye for evaluation. There is good in most, but not total good. And, and in this case... There really are some dangers attached to the historical critical method. I think Dungan has simply raised a flag, and it's a good one, that would help us. I'm noticing the time, and I've got to hurry so much here. Uh, under the next Roman numeral comparing texts, uh, I want to tell you that the temptations of Jesus, uh, if, you were to go, if we were to go and read carefully and delineate the, the passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would find... Uh, let's go ahead and take a look at that one, uh, Philip. We would find that... Matthew in Matthew 4 has this order of the temptations. And some of you, you know this story well. You know how important it is that Jesus answered the devil in every case with Scripture. In the wilderness first, according to Matthew, the devil said, turn these stones to bread. And Jesus answered uh, from the Psalms. And then, then he took him to the temple and said, jump, jump down and just throw yourself down and be saved. And everybody will hurrah and applaud. And number three, he took him to a very high mountain or high place. Uh, and said, bow and rule the world. Bow down to me, Satan said, and I will give you all these kingdoms. Now, go to Mark. Mark summarizes the whole thing, 11 verses in, in Matthew, but only two in Mark. says that once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. That's all Mark says. Mark is condensed, to say the least, in this case. 
But look at, look at Luke. Luke has the same thing as Matthew, except numbers 2 and 3 are reversed. This is a good example of the synoptic problem. Some would say, okay, then nobody's right. <laughs> or we can't know for sure what really happened. What's important here? Jesus was tempted. Uh, what really happened? We don't know for sure. There were these three temptations. We don't know the exact order necessarily. I'm not going to lose sleep over it, but neither am I going to, to uh, in any way damage my faith or my decision to put my faith in the Savior. The wilderness first, then the high place, then the temple. Okay, which is it? Matthew, are you right? Luke, are you right? My answer is, I don't know. You can, you can, you can read volumes and volumes on this, and you can talk about the Luke preference or, or the Luke choice for for geography or Matthew's choice for geography and the reason and the logic and the building to a climax and all those kinds of, of approaches to this problem. I'm simply saying to you, know there's a problem, okay? Know there's a question that can be raised, but don't let it shake your faith. In uh, the next passage, Disciples Seeking Preeminence, we don't have time to pursue that extensively, but let me just show you what the difference is. If we took time, we're not going to read all of this. Notice it begins in Matthew 20. This is the story when James and John uh, came and asked for special places. They'd heard Jesus talking about the thrones, heard Jesus anticipating uh, uh, heaven and talk of the, the 12 uh, places for them. And then in verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, ask a favor of him. What is it you want? He said, she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. Well, Jesus takes this opportunity to teach a powerful and incredible lesson about greatness. And Jesus' message is, if you want to be great, you better get down and serve. There's no greatness in my kingdom, Jesus says, unless you're willing to serve. Look at, look at uh, Mark. Luke doesn't have this story, by the way. But Mark has this story. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, da-da-da. Okay, here's the point. Mark doesn't mention the mother. Matthew talks about the mother. Synoptic problem. Who's right? <laughs> was it the mother or was it the two boys without the mother? I wish I had time to go into all the details of Salome's connection, family ties with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and how she probably thought, hey, you know, I'm going to get the foot in the door here. I'm going to help my boys. I mean, they've left their fishing occupation and they ought to have more than just worn out sandals and memories of miracles. They ought to get the Secretary of State and Secretary of Treasury positions. Was she behind the scenes? I believe she was. Did James and John want this? You bet they did. Who asked for it initially? I don't know. But from this corner of the intersection, somebody heard the sons asking. From that corner of the intersection, somebody heard the mother asking. The point is, the question was asked, and Jesus taught the lesson. And the lesson is this. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. Now, what Mark does with this, with this whole story, is he just puts it in a series of five incidents that are on a journey, a travel log, that gets Jesus to Jerusalem. What Matthew does with this story is fascinating. I mean, it's really fascinating because what Matthew does is he puts it in a series of stories, every one of which is accented with a message that says, you better not be seeking preeminence. 
It starts with the kids in Jesus' arms. And Jesus says the kingdom is like these little kids. And you won't get into the kingdom unless you're like one of these innocent children who are not pushing to get to the front of the line. And then you go and you listen to a parable about the workers in the vineyard. The guys who worked all day got the same pay as the ones who came in at the last hour. And Jesus ends that parable by saying, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And you scratch your head and you say, what do you mean, Jesus? I'll tell you what He means. He means the same thing as when He said, if you want to be great, if you want to be first, you better be willing to be last. And Jesus illustrated that when He took uh, the, the towel of the servant in the upper room. And these disciples or apostles had been discussing who's the greatest. <laughs> who's the greatest? Peter, are you the greatest? John, are you the greatest? James, are you the greatest? Matthew, are you the greatest? And Jesus said, stop it. He didn't say those words. He said that by his actions. He wrapped himself with the towel of a servant and he washed their dirty, stinking feet. And he washed Judas's feet just as he washed Peter's feet and John, the beloved disciple. And then he said, I want you to do what I'm doing. And the greatest, the most powerful statement uh, at the end of this whole incident is when Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Well, the point that I'm making in the synoptic problem is that you see the differences, but hopefully it doesn't keep you from seeing the main message. If we had time, we'd look at the three passages unique to Mark. You can look at them on your own. They're right here. We're going to skip over those. And then finally, I'll simply refer you to David Black's article, Roman numeral 6, The Historical Origins of the Gospels. David Black's article, as I've written here, is probably the best brief, easy to read presentation that I've seen. As I began to research this again and look back into it and see what's been written recently, I ran across this article and I really like it. I wish I could furnish copies of it to you, but it's, uh, you know, 20 pages or so. Uh, if